Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to On This Walk, the show that helps men rediscover their unique path to true freedom. My name is Luke Iorio. I spent the last two decades in the human potential industry, helping, teaching, coaching thousands of people to create a more fulfilling, deeply aligned life. It's my mission to reawaken and reconnect men to the joy, purpose, and peace that will help you become who you aspire to be for yourself, your loved ones, as well as those you lead. Today, I've invited back a previous guest from one of our most listened to episodes, A Walk With Purpose, that was released back in the early part of November 22. As part of my time working actually uh, directly with Tim as a guide, who I'll share more about in just a moment, he introduced me to some work that I had never done before in my life. And since being exposed to this work, it seems to come up a lot on these episodes. It's been present in my client work, and I've gotten familiar with some of its more popular variation. And why this work is so important, why it has stuck out so much, it has revealed to me the ways in which we aren't free, the ways that we stay stuck, and the ways that we are actively running programs in our lives that directly contradict what we truly want and who it is that we wish to be. And that's why today we're going to tackle this topic of parts work and specifically an approach called voice dialogue. That's where Tim's primary training was from. This work helps us to bring awareness to the parts within us. You can think of these parts as sub-personalities that are most typically running the show and which are the parts that usually are the ones that hold the keys to our joy, beauty, playfulness, and more that we want to reemerge in our lives, but they have remained trapped. Without doing this work, our blind spots and our unconscious programming are going to continue to run the show. Of course, we've got so much outer conflict in the world as well. But as all the old wisdom traditions tell us, any conflict happening out there in the world, if it exists out there, it exists in here. So to navigate this, we have back Tim Corcoran, who's been doing parts work and voice dialogue work for decades as part of wilderness-based programming that helps individuals reconnect with their purpose. And I will add aliveness, because that's something I directly uh, experienced working with Tim and the name of his company is Purpose Mountain. Tim led me through this work. He guided me all the way through a vision quest, which I detailed in part two of Walk With Purpose back in November of 2022. And Tim's been mentored by indigenous elders, uh, top teachers and voice dialogue that were involved in, its, in that work from its earliest days, as well as having supported hundreds of hundreds of clients on this journey. Tim even reveals at the latter part of this episode how this work specifically has impacted his relationship with his wife and how it can impact us this way as well. And so one last item before we kick off, one of the ways that I was actually able to receive such great benefit and impact out of the work that we're discussing today is because of developing a mindfulness-based compassion practice. And so if you could do with a little less stress, especially when it comes to your relationships at home or at work, I want to send you the compassion meditation for building empathy that I have created something that I share with my clients. So just send me a DM through any of the social networks, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever, and I'll send it to you for free because I want you to get the absolute most out of this work and frankly, this life. And I know how many clients I have helped with it. So please don't hesitate to drop me that DM for the meditation. Now let's dive in with Tim Corcoran and freeing all of our parts. Tim, I want to welcome you back to On This Walk. It's great to have you uh, back on the show. Thanks, Luke. Great to be back. Excellent. I teed a little bit of, of this up in, in you know, some of the introduction, but uh, maybe just kind of to ease us into the conversation. 
for everybody listening and for Tim, you know, when this emerged in part of our conversation previously, we alluded to some of this, but this is something that keeps coming back in multiple episodes that I've done. And that's specifically this issue of parts work. And what I've described to people in the past is that as I have really kind of deepened into my own understanding of working with the different parts of self, the different parts of who I am, what it's allowed me to do is to see these different voices, these different roles, these different aspects and, and pieces of who it is that I am, step forward, I can better understand them. And it also gives me this feeling almost as if if I can see all of my parts almost like sitting around me in a circle and I can see myself in the middle, it allows me to see both the parts as well as the whole of mm -hmm. what's going on. And that allows me to just take in so much more information and wisdom and understanding and, and all sorts of other things that we'll get into today. But I just wanted you to have that as a little bit of reference to what's been coming up on some of these different episodes since you were last here to talk about the, the vision quest and all sorts of other work that you and I did together. And so today, obviously, we're going to talk about parts work. We're going to talk about the ecology of self. And, you know, for everybody listening, I didn't have any frame of reference for this. Like when Tim and I started working together, I had never done anything with parts work. I had no experience with this. You'd been prepping me for it. And, and I think it was maybe four or five sessions in that we started to dive in. And I was amazed at how quickly we were able to get into the work that we're going to be talking about today and how much insight and how much openness, like once you connect to these different parts of ourselves, these different voices that exist within us, how much openness you gain from that in the way that your awareness opens, your understanding opens. So anyway, it was something that was really incredible. That's for everybody listening. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to have Tim back on the show is to get into this. So maybe if we begin, Tim, with maybe some more of your personal experience prior to professional, because I'm curious how you first were connected to to this parts work like how did you find it or how did it find you and then we'll get into just the importance of this and and let it unfold from there yeah absolutely well this is a really exciting topic it's a big part of my work in the world today luke let me just say this three primary benefits and then i'll jump into my uh, personal story three primary benefits of parts work ecology of self i see it as the royal road to self love thriving human relationships, like with intimate others, partners, or friendships, or business, and discovery and embodiment of purpose or vision. Mm. Right? Those three prime, those are three big benefits, big ones. right? Self-love, thriving relationships, and purpose. So for me, I got introduced to this body of work, gosh, a dozen years ago. And I was at a phase in my life where I was running the wilderness school with my wife, uh, Twin Eagles here in Idaho, and I was not finding the deep spiritual fulfillment from it that I once mm. had. And so it was a bit of an existential crisis for me. The work was still good. I was still impacting people really positively, but the impact on me was dwindling. I wasn't getting that big spiritual hit. Like, this is my juice. This is meaningful. This is deeply fulfilling. That just wasn't happening. So I went to some of my mentors at the time. And they had been introduced to parts work. I was brand new, much like yourself prior to working with me. Mm -hmm. And I was able to uncover really immediately, I would say within, gosh, <laughs> the first 30 minutes of, of being introduced to parts work. Look, I was able to, to uncover a traumatic piece from my own childhood 
that had been plaguing me for years. And frankly, I was largely unconscious of, mostly unconscious of. And it was safe. It was not overwhelming. It wasn't too much too soon. I was able to be with it in a, in a deep way and ultimately find self-love and healing through that approach. It led to all three of those, those benefits. It led to mm. the self-love. That's where it began for me. It helped me realize that I was actually evolving on my own spiritual path and that my work at the wilderness school was, was still great work in the world, but it wasn't my calling in, in the same way that it once had been. And of course, it had massive impacts on my relationship with Janine, my wife at the time. And the other big one, gosh, I mean, parts work has also saved my butt financially. It helped us get out of a big financial hole we were in. And it's pretty awesome stuff. It's, yeah. <laughs> it, it is a deeply transformational process that has wildly changed my life for the better and many, many others. I appreciate the context and we'll get into each of these kind of a little bit further of some of those, those major benefits. And as you described the Royal road to self-love thriving relationships, and then that discovery and embodiment of purpose. And I think for each of these, what I found is that through the parts work, I was better able to see the parts of myself that stood in the way that was resistant, right? To each of these it's funny because I'm trying to think of if, if there's anything else that I would add to that list of benefits. You know, I think within each of those, there is, you know, elements of, of healing. There's elements of the emergence of trust in whole new ways, trust and confidence that grows in whole new ways. But I think it's all wrapped up in, in what you described. Maybe if just for a moment, if we could define parts work and so that people just have a, a, you know, a little bit of a grounding of, of what do we mean by parts work? And if you want to put that in that broader context of the ecology of self, because I know that's kind of the bigger frame of, of this conversation. Yeah, sure. So, and I'm also aware, Luke, that parts work is gaining popularity amongst yeah. coaches, therapists, healers, and anyone doing transformational work these days. So the way I look at parts work and the ecology of self is that we are not a static one-dimensional being, that there are many, many different aspects to who we are. You could look at that psychologically and say that our psyche is comprised of many different parts, or we could look at that spiritually and say that there is a spiritual ecology of self, or from a soulful perspective, that there are, just like if we were to look at a natural landscape, there might be wetlands, and there might be mountains, there might be meadows, there might be thick evergreen forests, and riparian forest of aspens and cottonwoods, that the journey towards true fulfillment in life involves the process of reclaiming our wholeness. Whether we're on the track of like, gosh, I need to love myself more, whether we're on the track of, I want better thriving relationships in my life with other humans, or if we're on the track of, I need to discover and, and live my purpose. In order to do any of that, we need access to our full inner resources, our wholeness. And interestingly, the terminology healing, if, if you look into the etymology of that, it, it means becoming whole. Yeah. And so to look at it and understand that through the natural process of being raised as a human being on this earth, inevitably in our childhood, we come to a certain point where we determine that certain ways of being, certain parts of ourselves are unacceptable. You know, example for me, when I was six years old, I was a, a little hell on wheels, you know, <laughs> hyperactive kid. And it was too much. It was too much for my mom. How many times did my mom say, Timmy, get out of the kitchen. You're too much. You're too much. Eventually over time, Luke, I made the decision, oh, that wildness 
inside of me is not acceptable here. So I put it away. I decided that's not acceptable. It was still in me. Yeah. Where did it go? It went back into the recesses, you know, down in, into my inner basements or in, into my inner bogs or inner swamps, only to be reclaimed years and years later, right? So another metaphor, this is less of a nature metaphor, but it's, it's a useful one. You know, if, if you have a vehicle and you've got your car and your car stops working, it's useful to recognize that the vehicle has different parts. It has an mm-hmm. engine, it has a starter, it has an alternator, it has an air conditioner, it has transmission. And if you're going to fix the vehicle, you need to identify which part has the issue and which part needs attention. So when people come to me and they're struggling, that's part of it is looking, okay, well, where? let's slow down and, and look into this. And where is the issue actually at? And how can we address this in an appropriate way? And I want to actually mention the terminology voice dialogue. Yeah. So doctors Hal and Sidra Stone, uh, two of my teachers, Hal passed away a couple of years ago, Sidra is still alive. They were like renegade PhD <laughs> psychologists back in the 60s. And he was originally, Hal was a Jungian analyst and hmm. took Carl Jung's work of the subpersonalities. It's another terminology we use, parts, voices, selves, or subpersonalities. And he was the very first one, just through his own creative process, to think that, oh, I can actually speak to a part of a person one at a time. And so he really invented the process. If there was one individual that we know of who invented it, it was Hal. And I'm aware of Richard Schwartz and Internal Family Systems, IFS, very popular these days. Interestingly, Dick Schwartz, he trained with Alan Sidra. That work goes back to Helen Sidra. They're really the pioneers of this work. And so parts tend to present themselves in opposites, right? I might have a pleaser, a part of me that really wants to make you happy or make uh, someone I'm speaking with happy, because if I do that, then what? Then I get your approval and you'll love me, right? But at what cost? If I'm unconscious of it, well, at the cost of... I. I'm not true to my own heart. I'm not true to my own voice. I put my needs second. Really common one out there, especially for a lot of guys these days. <laughs> Guilty. Right? Got it. And so this is what tends to happen. So, And maybe I learned that when I was 10 because my mom would get so upset at me. And I, I learned real quick, if I wanted her approval, her love, I had to do what she wanted. I had to make her happy. You know, right. Really common stuff. Yeah. And so then what, 20, 30, 40 years go by and... I've adopted this survival strategy of pleasing others, but totally not being true to myself. And then it catches up and I feel like, God, totally <laughs> like horrible and, and resentful and upset, or maybe I've got addictions or bad habits of eating or you know, screen time or whatever it is to, to compensate. But the heart of the matter is that I have forgotten how to really love myself, how to really put my voice first. That's just one example. There's lots of examples. We might have a perfectionist and a carefree self. You know, a lot of people, perfectionists these days, have forgotten what it means to be carefree. Or we might have an achiever, the doer. The, yeah, this is a big one, right? <laughs> How many oh, yeah. of us have constantly got to be working and making shit happen? And when do we have time to just slow down and be? There is the inner critic, another big, you know, common one. And it's opposite the inner teacher, you know, the inner critic that's constantly reaming us a new one and telling us what we're doing wrong and giving us a hard time. And really Mm. oftentimes downright abusive. 
and the disowned self, the opposite self that we've yet that we put away is what that inner teacher, that one that can hold space, that's patient, that's understanding, that can really guide us in a positive way forward. So lots of different examples here, but hopefully this begins to paint the picture for folks. As Walt Whitman quipped, I am large, I contain multitudes. We like to think of ourselves in some solid way, that the self that we know is clear and perhaps even singular. We don't really think of ourselves as a multitude or having all of these different parts. So I want you to pay attention when you use those powerful words, I am, because those words create. Those words can make solid whatever follows them. So what do I mean by solid? Well, when we make something solid, it gives the impression that whatever it is, it isn't changing. It's going to stay what it is. It doesn't have that quality of, let's say, an air or water, for instance, to move, to reform into something new. Instead, what we've made solid feels fixed. It can't change. It can't grow. So when we say something like, I'm a perfectionist, we make it hard for us to see more of who we are other than just that part. It's more accurate to simply say, a part of me is a perfectionist. And part of me loves letting it ship, as Seth Godin might say, meaning giving it a good effort and then letting it go. When we make a part of a solid, it also then shuts down the other aspect that is its counterpart within us. In this case, it could be that you shut down your playfulness or your creativity, ingenuity, that ability to be carefree, even if just for a while, if you stay stuck in the I'm a perfectionist illusion or story. There is so much more to who each and every single one of us really truly is. And we have to lean into understanding all of our parts to really be able to unlock this, to show up as fully as we wish to show up. But why do we do this? Why do we give in to just labeling certain parts of us and allowing those parts to become the primary, the dominant factors that shape our personality the way that we interact with this life? Why do we do it? Well, for that, you're going to have to keep listening. We'll get there. The piece that it calls to mind for me is that as you go through this process and you begin to identify these different parts and you learn how to engage and relate and communicate with these different parts, for me, as we got into it, we can go into an example in a moment, is that it allowed me to bring up elements of myself and personify it, right? So if I could take a trait like achiever, that was, and for me, it was not only achiever, but it was wrapped up into, into a piece of me that I, I would think of as the businessman, oh, yeah. right? Is the, the businessman, he's, he's going to achieve and it's going to be structured and it's going to be planned and it's going to write all this whole list of attributes that go with that part that is a sub-personality part of my whole of who it is that I am. But when I was able to start to relate to them, because I was able to personify that part, I could engage and relate and communicate in a very, very different way and begin to receive back from that part so that I could actually hear what is your intention? What are you trying to accomplish here? And it changes that dynamic where you're, yes. you are, right, you're reworking the relationship with something that exists within you. And I guess the other piece that I want to add to this and, and then just see what you, you would add to it is that as I did that, I was able to recognize when certain parts of me, businessman is a great example of, of this, when all of a sudden that part of me would try to sit in the driver's seat and take yep. over. 
Yeah. And it's like, now I can recognize any given moment and maybe it'll take me a few moments, but <laughs> theoretically yeah. in the moment, yeah. I can begin to recognize when, oh, wait a minute, one of my parts has taken control and I need to pause for a minute. I need to regather myself. I can see what that part has to say. I can see what it needs. I can see what the issue or the resistance, whatever it is that's coming up, but let's move it back to the passenger seat. And it, it, because we've personified it, we can be in relationship with it in a different way and recognize when it's trying to step in and why is it trying to step in. Absolutely. And what's key in that I think of is awareness. That's exactly what you're talking about. Look, being yeah. able to step back and see, oh, there's this aspect to me that is a pattern. And see, when we're unconscious of it, we just think of it as ourself. We might say we're identified with a self. I'm identified with the achiever. Yeah. What do you mean a part of me is an achiever? No, it's not. That's just me. Well, actually, right. no. <laughs> the self right. is like a set of rose-colored glasses. And maybe you've been wearing those rose-colored glasses for 35 years really and you really think own. it is you. <laughs> yeah. But you can take them off. Yeah. And there is a wholeness underneath that. There's something else behind that. And as you go through this process of personifying, identifying with these parts, learning about them, connecting with them, and importantly, separating from them, having times where you can set them aside, where you can take the rose-colored glasses off, you begin to see, oh, there are other options. I also think about inner conflict and inner harmony. So mm. many of us these days are dealing with inner conflict. And it's easy to project that outward. You know, of course, we've got so much outer conflict in the world as well. But as all the old wisdom traditions tell us, any conflict happening out there in the world, if it exists out there, it exists in here. Yeah. And a big part of the way we heal that, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion, social justice these days, that journey has got to begin within. Yeah. We've got to find that inner harmony. And oftentimes, you can have two of these opposite selves that are fighting. And this can get pretty extreme. I mean, to, uh, all the way to like full on like inner abuse. I mean, I've seen so many people and been there myself where like the pleaser, right? The nice guy, the one who's always fawning over others. There are parts that get so upset about that pattern. <laughs> and then you get this inner conflict and these inner battles, gargantuan wars. Through the work, people are able to see that, and this is important, right? That two things that all parts serve and all parts deserve love. Mm -hmm. Even if they are destructive parts, even if they are parts that have caused great damage and great pain. I don't say that lightly. I'm thinking of all the way to, to full on, you know, abusive scenarios. A part cannot exist without a function. They don't just exist randomly and they all serve the self in some way. It might get really twisted and sometimes it does. And usually for most folks, not thankfully, you know, not that crazy. And the key is not to kill the part. The key is not to throw it away. That just leads to more pain and suffering. The key is to understand it and ultimately to love it. And it's through that embracing that we can really experience transformation. And I've found that with, and I think this is what you're getting at. If you have seen, seen it in different ways, by all means, please correct me. But each part that I have had the chance to sit with and examine and be in relationship with. When I go back to the origins of that part, mm -hmm. I almost always find that it's acting from a place of love and trying to keep me safe. 
and there are other parts as well that still stem out of love, but for the parts that we think of that are times overbearing or difficult to deal with, the inner critic, the protector, another one that we haven't specifically mentioned, the pleaser, things that I identify with very, very, very well, all these different parts, for me, I know, they were born out of that protector mentality. They were born out of wanting to keep me safe, which is an act of love. And then they took over the driver's seat and they got a little aggressive, right? They came yep. a little overprotective, a little overbearing. Yep. And it continues down that path until it gets interrupted. But when I can go back and recognize that the origin of what they were doing was to care for me, that was part of what it was trying to serve in that moment. Then even everything that came after that might have gone too far, I can still have love for because I can recognize yes. where it came from. Yeah, exactly. Right? No, ab absolutely, Luke. That's so key, you know, especially those big dominant ones we're talking about, the pleaser, oh, yeah. the critic, the perfectionist, the achiever. These are, you know, sometimes what we might call primary selves and right. they exist. Yeah, exactly. They're trying to help. And the way they do that is by either typically by making us smaller in the world, oftentimes, and by preventing us from feeling our vulnerability. Because it's scary to feel vulnerable, to feel sadness, to feel fear, to feel that intense, often childlike rawness. And as kids, we had to have something. There had to be some kind of protection. And so, yeah, in the psyche of a seven-year-old, oh, the genius move, and it was genius at that time, <laughs> yeah. is I'm going to please others. That'll work. I won't have to feel so raw, so sensitive, so vulnerable. But the problem is we use that strategy for 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> and interestingly, a vulnerability, it's such a buzzword these days. But it's, again, I go back to the three big benefits. If you really want to love yourself, you have got to have moments of feeling vulnerable. If you want to connect yeah. with another human being, you have got to have moments of shared vulnerability. And if you want to connect with your purpose, your vision, you have got to get vulnerable with God, with creator, with mystery, with soul, however you fill, use, fill in the blank, whatever your word of choice yeah. is there. But that vulnerability is key in all of those areas. So that's actually something I, I, I wanted to then get to is because, you know, we've started this by talking about the pleaser, the achiever, the inner critic, you know, some of these more domineering ones that tend to be primary because they come out usually at a very early age so that, you know, we're only so sophisticated at that point and we are doing the absolute best that we can to handle whatever the circumstances happen to be that we're going through. And so we're talking about more of those that can be a little more domineering or as you described, might be primary if, if that's part of our, our patterning and conditioning. What are they covering up? Yeah. Right. Because there's, there's all these other parts too. And that's, you know, that was to me so much of the value of the work that I found so quickly was all of a sudden the parts that had been hidden or repressed, depending on which language you want to use, were just kind of like waiting there to be rediscovered. Yeah. But they needed to feel safe to come out. What's the other side of this, right? Let's talk about a little bit of, of what gets hidden in this process. Again, and this is where I go back to the opposites, right? So yeah. Yep. So like with the pleaser, if I've adopted, and I, I was, I was, are you kidding? I was the nice guy for <laughs> so, so long oh, yeah. and he still pops his head up occasionally. Right. Yep. So yeah. So maybe when I was a boy, I realized, like I said, I realized that I have to please others. And oftentimes it does stem from relationships with parents. I realized that I had to please my mom to make her happy, to experience approval and love from her. So I took that on in the process. I made everybody else more important than me. It's not all bad either, right? Like another thing I did was 
I cultivated a high level of awareness for others. Like I could walk into a room and read that room and figure out oftentimes, you know, in just a matter of seconds, what's going on? What's the social dynamic? Who needs what? If I want to get in with this person, how I've got to be or what I've got to say. So there was a social awareness that was birthed from that self. And that social awareness is actually, it's a very, very important skill and helpful. The question is just who's, who's using it, right? So over time, I realized, gosh, this isn't working. Maybe I'm in my 30s or 40s and I realize, wow, I'm putting everybody else first. And I, like I said, I feel horrible. I've noticed that my relationships aren't well. It doesn't actually work. I'm not getting my needs met. I'm starting to feel resentful. There's maybe a lack of polarity in my romantic relationships and the spark is gone. What the heck's going on? Wow, well, there's an opportunity to look at that at that pleaser. And so I do. And maybe I go through some some parts work and you know, I kind of get into the history of it. I feel it in my body. And over time I realize, oh, yeah, that there's actually a lot of pain back. There's a lot of vulnerability back there that I've actually been unaware of, unconscious of all these years. And so typically it's the vulnerability that has got to come first. We've got to realize why did that thing come to exist in any way in the first place? And then there's an opportunity for me to say, wow, okay, if that pleaser is not going to, if he's going to step back, maybe he's tired after 30 years of pleasing, you know, maybe he's ready to take a break. (laughs) Well, he's willing to, but the thing is that vulnerability has still got to be addressed. The vulnerability doesn't go anywhere. It's still there. It's got to be protected. So either he's going to do it, or if not, if he's going to take a back seat, there needs to be a new a reconfiguration in, in, mm. in my inner world and in my inner ecology of self. And so what needs to happen is I need to come forward consciously with my own, well, maybe like an inner father or inner mother, inner nurturing parent that can just be there for myself, that can admit it when I'm scared. I remember when I first started doing podcasts, this was a big one. I'd get so nervous, you know, and fear of public speaking, man, my heart rate would go up like crazy. And and this is what I would do. I would say, well, I'm not going to do the old strategy. I would just feel it. I was like, I'm going to feel scared and I'm going to be there for myself. And I would imagine an inner parent showing up and being there for my scared little boy. And you know what? I did okay. And I was able to get up here and speak and do stuff. And, you know, back in the day, I could have never imagined being here doing stuff like this. So then what that does, okay, so pleaser steps back because I'm actually showing up for myself. Some would call this the journey of reparenting, right? Or parenting ourselves. And now I realize, whoa, <laughs> yeah, there's this opposite self called self-respect, self-care, self-confidence, self-esteem. And he's like been chomping at the bit and he's, if my pleaser and, and the nice guy was a 10,000 pound, you know, gorilla, huh. my self-care and self-respect over there was like a, was like a 10 pound chimp, you know, yep, yep. or to use the analogy of muscles, you know, I had overworked that right arm so many times I had this huge muscle arm and then the yeah. left arm had just nothing, yeah. total muscle atrophy. And so, but we have a talk with that other side. We have a talk with self-respect and and we find out that he's been there all along and that he sees all these areas where he can show up in my life and how he can help and how he can help me in my relationship with my wife. He can help me on my spiritual path and he can help me really learn to put myself first, not in an arrogant way, 
but in a way that honors myself, that I can move with respect for myself and pride in this life. And over time, the change starts to happen. Over time, I catch it when my pleaser takes over and is driving the car. And I consciously say, oh, not not right now. I'm with my vulnerability. Now's a moment for self-respect. I'm going to step up here. I'm going to speak up for my needs right now. And wow, I mean, that one, (laughs) that alone can (laughs) drastically change, uh, certainly drastically change my life and has for many, many others. The two things that came up for me, number one, is when that vulnerable part of us and all of the different parts that are connected to that vulnerable self, it could be the carefree self, it could be the playful self, it could be like all these different versions. Being energy. Being energy the part of us that's just willing to love and trust just like out of the box, they're ready to be there and show up that way. What I got the sense of, and I have found for myself, my own experience, that's when more of my aliveness started to return, right? Because when we're in the parts of self that want to keep us safe, yes, that has served a function, but it usually puts more of a buffer between us and the direct experience of what this life can offer. And when we're willing to take down some of that, that buffer and we allow ourselves to be the vulnerable self, the playful self, the innocent child that's within us to go out and play with the world again, to be creative in that fashion, there's this vitality, there's this aliveness that begins to return and it's a vibrancy that we can really begin to connect to. And as that fills in, that last piece that you brought up in your experience, it's been my experience as well of the part of me that can now speak up and say, these are what my needs are. And I can say that in a confident place, not a selfish place. I can say it in a mature place, not an immature place. Ironically, that's actually a lot of what is, a, is playing out is it's so much of even what we see right now in society is a lot of the, the wants, the things that are the desires are actually coming from an immature part of ourselves. They're coming from a very different part. They're not coming from the mature adult that actually exists within us. Or from an angry place, you know, or from an angry this, place. this has got yeah. to happen. You know, that's a well, sure and, sign that balance has been lost. Yeah. Well, and that absolutely. And cause that, that was something else that had come up for me before, as you were describing the pleaser is that you head down this role of the pleaser and you begin to feel the parts of you that you're sacrificing, which ultimately can only lead at some point to resentment. Like yeah, you can only put exactly. up with so much of that. <laughs> exactly. And that resentment's going to manifest in anger and, and frustration and aggravation and conflict and all the things that- Or, or withdraw and pulling back mm, and, yes. just, and shutting down and withholding. collapsing, right? Yeah. yeah. How much of both of those are we seeing in the world right now? <sighs> Oh my God. Right. Yeah. But it starts as exactly as you said, it's got to be, we've got to cultivate that inside of self first so we can bring it forward. There was one thing I wanted, I mean, this is a minor line that you dropped in the middle of it, but I caught it and I needed to explore this. It's not actually (laughs) technically part of our, our dialogue here, but as since you mentioned the benefit, one of the benefits here was the thriving relationships. You used a line before that had to do with the pleaser was creating a lack of polarity in your intimate relationships. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to bring you back to that because I don't know how many people oh, would have sure. caught that, but that's something <laughs> I'm aware of. And there's some yeah. explanation there because and I think it's a really important one we don't think about as much. So could you explain what you meant by that, that lack of polarity and how that actually hurts a relationship as opposed yeah. to enhances one? Yeah. Well, this is classic. I, I work with all genders and different ages. As a middle-aged man myself, you know, I, I do get a lot of middle-aged men as clients. And it's a very common pattern these days for middle-aged men, you know, I'm thinking of heterosexual middle-aged men married 
who are pleasers, who are nice guys, who have stepped into this pattern of putting others' needs first and particularly putting their wives' needs first. But this can happen in any kind of setup. I mean, any relationship. women and women, men and men, uh, maybe the woman is the pleaser and the man and she's trying to please. I mean, that's yeah. more the old you know, kind of outdated model from the 50s or something, right? But so polarity in relationship. So in that scenario, say if I'm pleasing my wife, I'll use myself as an example. If I'm pleasing my wife, she's supposedly getting her needs met. She focuses a lot on herself. I focus a lot on herself. Interestingly, our partners tend to embody the opposite primary selves that as we do. So if I'm identified with pleaser and I'm not identified with self-care, typically, not always, but typically, then my partner will be identified with self-care. So she's really good at speaking up for her needs. She's really good at going to yoga every morning. She's really good at going to bed on time. She's all this stuff, right? Yeah. And I, I kind of judge her for it too. <laughs> and judgment, this is a whole other area where, because we judge what in others, what we've repressed in ourselves. So what happens though, in the relationship is you can see how, well, I'm pleasing her and she's in self-care. So all of the energy is tied up for her and it's not focused on me. And so there's no polarity. There's no plus and minus. You know, you think of electricity in order for electricity to flow, there's got to be the positive and the negative charge. And in order for there to be sparks in a relationship, both individuals need to be, have a sense of personal empowerment and that self-love, that self-respect that, Hey, I'm going to do this for me right now. You might like it. You might not, but I'm doing this for me. And when that's there, that polarity, there might be times where it's like, Oh, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. And well, what do you mean? I'm not going to get my needs met. And what do you mean? No. <laughs> but as that shifts and each individual is honoring themselves in that way, then the energy sparks. And we notice that, you know, because it's it's sexy, right? It, it's not sexy. Just <laughs> go into like the dating world. I'm not a dating coach, but boy, oh boy, if you're gonna go in there and just be a pleaser and try and please that person you're courting, it does not work very well. They want to see someone who's honoring themselves, who can make stuff happen, who can who's loving themselves, who's showing up for themselves and treats them in a good way, treats them honorably, right? I hope that explains a little bit more on, on polarity. It does. And both partners, right, can stand with a certain degree of inner strength. When they can stand with that honoring of self, when they can stand with more of that empowerment, where it is more, you know, as, as my wife and I at times have, have described this, we don't need each other. We want each other. It's a choice that we have made. Yeah. And so there is an, an independence and an interdependence, but there's not a codependence that yeah. gets developed there. And so when we are able to stand in the strength of who it is that we are and our partner can do the same. Yes, that's true. Every once in a while, yeah. be like, oh, come on. I want, you know, I want a little more of my needs met. I want a little, you know, whatever. Right. Right. And at the same time, there is such beauty or handsomeness, however you want, want to describe it, in seeing someone who can stand with that level of presence for themselves. As you said, it's, that's very sexy. That's really attractive yeah. to see somebody with that level of you know, self-determination and, and understanding that they've got. I did want to pull that out because that, that is an important piece of this. I think the other thing in terms, because we, we talked a bit about the component of self-love, meaning the more and more that we can see all these pieces and the pieces of us that have felt vulnerable can come back online. We spend a little bit of time there. 
on this thriving relationships, I wanted to make a, a you know bring up one or two other things before we move on to the purpose side of these benefits as well. Mm-hmm. In terms of relationships, I would imagine the other dynamic that comes out is that when I recognize, like when we're in relationship with others, that's usually when our primary selves and our repressed selves are going to bounce back and forth. You know, our relationships are the greatest possible teacher that we can have in this life. Oh, yeah. And so we're going to find that these dynamics that we have not yet brought into awareness that still need some healing and holding inside of who it is that we are, they're going to get triggered and they're going to come up in these relationships. And what I've found is that's where all of a sudden, if I can step back at any given moment for maybe a challenge that, that my wife and I, Dawn and I have had, or if, if it's even with my kids or very, maybe a very close friend, I can step back and go, huh, what part just came back online? Because that was most definitely not my best self. <laughs> that was not yeah, my, exactly. I, right? And so I'm curious, just like for your perspective as to how do people maybe use some of this parts work, maybe with an eye specific to their relationships so that yeah. it's something, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, it is. I mean, relationship is this incredible, incredible teacher. And this kind of parts work ecology of self is so well suited for supporting individuals in relationship. So as I said before, typically what happens is if you have two people in a relationship, one holds one end of the spectrum and the other holds the other, particularly if there's if they haven't done a lot of inner work. And again, I, I, I want to go to examples to help make this real for people. So here's another pair we haven't talked about so much yet. Heart and mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. So classic. What's the classic example would be the overly intellectual male and the incredibly heartful, loving female. Like this is an old, old one, right? Right. Right. Goes back decades and decades. And I'll, again, I'll just use myself as an example. So, so I'm really identified with the mind. Everything's got to make sense. The scientific worldview, intellectual. And then my wife over there is really heartful. She's, she's running all the emotions in the relationship. I'm really disconnected to my heart. I don't, feelings? What do you mean feelings? <laughs> I've got a meeting to get to. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I go to judgment. You know, Judgment is such a great teacher. Yeah. Uh, one of the laws of inner work, right? This is worth mentioning, Luke, is that, what, again, what we judge in others, we have repressed in ourselves. Yes. So I might judge my wife as being so chaotic, you know, geez, like she can't stay on one track in a conversation. She's constantly all over the place. She won't make the point. Honey, what are you trying to say? Would you just make your point? Would you just tell me what the point is first? And then you can go on and talk for like half an hour with all these details. That drives me nuts, right? (laughs) This is personal experience, you see. But what's going on is she's actually connected in the heart. I'm all up here in the head. Now, one's not right, one's not wrong, right? That's the other thing to be mindful of. Be careful of the mindset that would tell you, well, the mind has destroyed everything in the world and it's disconnected and it's cold. And and so we need to get rid of it. Uh Uh-uh. It has a place. It's a tool. Maybe it's been overused, admittedly, but it's a tool. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I judge my wife as overly emotional, emoting all of the time. I've got all of my reasons why it's inefficient, why it makes our functioning as a family slow down and all of this judgment. But what I'm judging in her, I've repressed in myself. The truth is I have a hard time accessing my heart. The truth is it's easier for me to and safer for me to be up here and in judgment and in my mental process rather than actually feeling 
all of what's going on inside this heart. And that's actually scary. Mm. And so if I can see relationship as teacher, if I can see that what I'm judging in her, I've disowned in myself. If I can see that, wow, all that, what I call chaoticness, it's not that I need to become chaotic. It's that what's the positive spin on that? Oh, Mm. it's that I need to connect with my own heart. I need to feel. I need to express this. Wow, it just so happens she's always kind of cold with me too because I never actually approach her from the heart. Maybe I, I feel like I don't know how. Maybe, and it's not even my fault. My dad didn't model this for me. I didn't have a mature men when growing up modeling this. I didn't have uncles who were my male mentors. Super common one, right? I've heard this story a billion times, right? Lived this story. And so the work then for me is, can I claim some of this heart connection myself? Can I begin to feel? Can I begin to share on this level? Interestingly, as I do it, you know, we think of a couple, it's like one unit. So if she's running all the emotions and the heart and I'm over here running all the, the mind, what I want is for her to be a little bit more logical. And maybe that would really help. Maybe there is some growth on her part, not in a judgmental way, but just holistically speaking, maybe there is. But you see, if I'm running it all, I've got a hundred percent of it. There's none left for her and vice versa. So as I embrace maybe 10% emotion, I'm still running 90% mind, right? But I'm embracing 10% heart that frees up that 10%. She actually can feel me starting to connect in my heart. She picks up that 10% of the mind and conversations go a little bit better. She feels more connected with me in the heart. She is able to be a bit more logical in her conversations. And we're able to meet there in the middle. And maybe over time in the ideal world, what, you know, maybe that bumps up and now I'm running 20, 30, 40% heart, you know. So relationships as teacher, a huge one. And that's just, again, one example, heart and Mm -hmm. mind, but we could look at many different examples of different opposites, how that plays out. I think a few things. One is that when we take on that part or we take on that archetypal role, because I think mind and heart is a beautiful archetypal kind of of energy that we could talk about here, is that when we operate from that self, from that part of self, we forget that we're going to create the reality that we're playing into because there is both projection and interaction from that part of self. And the more that we interact in that persona, that archetype, that energy, the more that the world is going to respond to that part and it's going to become more concrete. It's going to seem like, well, this is all of, as you said before, no, this is exactly who I am. Well, actually, it's part of who you are. Now I've been this way for 40 years. I know that, but it's still just part of who you are, right? <laughs> and so we're, we're actually creating our world based on the part that we're showing up with. And so the more that we can recognize these parts were meant to be passengers so that the full self, the whole self, as often as possible, or at least our most conscious self at that time can show up, then we're going to create a world based on interacting from that place. And obviously that's going to play out first and foremost within our closest relationships. The other thing that, that came up for me as you described that was that this is also about what the appropriate balance is for each of us. Right. And you described at the end, you know, maybe it's 90, 10, maybe it's 10, 90, what, you know, whatever the thing is, it doesn't mean that everything has to be 50, 50. Right. If, right. If, if for me, natural is, let's say 70% in the mind and 30% in the heart, just to use this latest example, that's balanced for me. 
and it gives me what feels like is is appropriate for who I am in my design. But I can tell you, a hundred percent and zero, there's nothing Doesn't about work. that. That's, it's not. It, there's nobody on this planet that that, right. that that's true for because it, it it literally is defined as imbalance in yeah. in that regard. And it's also not static, right? I mean, I mean, we're using numbers, but, exactly. but you know, I might vary. For, I might have moments where I'm ninety percent hard and or a hundred percent. And that's the right thing. So it, it grows and changes over time. And actually, I really appreciate you saying that way because that's also part of balance. People have heard me say it. Balance to me is not the scales of justice. Balance is the surfer on the breaking wave. And so as life is breaking all around you, how is it you're staying balanced? 90% this way, 40% this way, 20% this way, 20, right? So you're always shifting and that allows you to stay in balance for the moment that you happen to be in. What you were saying before of, and I, I just wanted to repeat it for everybody, what you judge in others is likely what you have repressed in self. And for me, what I found in that, and I'm just going to use a different example because I could replay most of the example and illustration you gave of me as well. <laughs> Middle-aged man, you know, right here, oh, yeah. um, oh, right? Yeah. So one of the other things that through your work and through the work with you, I should say together, that I illuminated was that there are individuals that had been, you know, have been and are in many instances, close relationships to me who were, to me, came across at times as very brash, as a bit self, quite a bit selfish. They were always speaking up for, this is what I need, and this is my perspective, and this is this. And whether they were coming at it from a good place or they were coming at it from a judgmental place doesn't really matter. It's that that, that behavior and that energy I'd perceive in a very, very negative way. And I would take that as I would judge it just tremendously. Yeah. And for me, the part that I was repressing was that I wasn't speaking up for my needs. Exactly. Right. So we go back to the pleaser. And as a pleaser, I was not speaking up to my needs. I would, many instances, wasn't even conscious of what most of those needs were. And these were individuals that, regardless of whether I agree or disagree with how they were going about doing it, they were speaking about their needs. They were sharing their perspective. They valued their perspective, their own worth to say, no, this is my opinion on this matter. And this is, I stand with conviction on that. Those were all things. And that, that idea of our needs, the conviction and the confidence to speak from that place yes. were all things that I was looking to grow within myself. I really encourage people to take a look at that mirror of what you are judging in others Try not to wince when you first look. It was I had a couple of wincing, cringing kind of moments right. when I did that. Yeah. <laughs> but it the value that it provides, the wisdom it provides, like you said, it changes royal things. Road. The, the royal road to thriving relationships. And that is also another element that adds to self-love because you begin to embrace yourself in such a different way. And the piece I wanted to get to is that then that third was the discovery and embodiment of purpose. And that I really wanted to just touch on for a bit because this idea of understanding selves as also revealing purpose, mm -hmm. I can kind of draw the dotted line there, but I have a feeling you can draw the much more direct line as to how this occurs. And so I wanted you to share some perspective with us on that. So two keys to discovering purpose are, and I've spoken about this before, vulnerability and passion. Passion because we have to find that part of ourself that really comes alive. We spoke about aliveness yep. earlier. We have to find that part of ourselves that is alive with energy and passion and motivation and inspiration that can really fuel us. And for many people today, that's missing. 
it's not that it's gone. It's that it's, it's repressed. It's disowned. And then the other one is vulnerability. If we're going to connect with our calling in life, with our vision, it's an intimate journey. One of the things I like to say is that it's, it's where our heart breaks is where our calling lies. Our calling dwells where our heart breaks. So, you know, if my heart breaks with, gosh, all of the, the youth, this was an earlier one for me, part of my calling with all the youth that were never, never met, you know, and really it goes back to me when I was 14 and really lost and lonely and didn't have anyone there for me. And my heart broke at that time. And then I see, oh my God, I can do something about that. For years and years, I served, I, I was a youth mentor. I still do some youth mentoring, showing up for teenagers. Oh my gosh. And had a special gift for helping out teenage males because I was one and boy, oh boy, have I made a difference, you know? So finding that vulnerability and finding passion, two keys to purpose. So with parts work, it offers a direct pathway to connect with that vulnerability. Okay. So if I'm judging so-and-so as arrogant, because I'm not able to really speak up for my own needs to use your example there, in order to take that on in order to actually step. It's not as simple as just, okay, I notice now I can do it. It doesn't change that quick. I've got to be honest about the fact that it's actually scary for me to speak up for myself. And if I'm really honest about it, my heart rate goes up and I kind of have maybe a little panic attack or maybe a big one, all this anxiety comes up. What's going on there? Wow. Maybe there's a whole journey of traumatic experience when I was little and when I did that and, and got bullied or something at school, lots of different examples. So I've got to go back again and come back to that vulnerability and feel that and be willing to feel scared, be able to admit it, be able to accept it. It's uncomfortable. Who wants vulnerability? You know, like give me vulnerability. Like give me Facebook feed or my YouTube videos or whatever, you know? So that's one. A second piece for connecting with purpose is that we live in an incredibly fast-paced world. We talked about the achiever mm-hmm. and its opposite. We just spoke briefly on it, being energy. Yeah. So, wow, it's so hard for me to just get still. Stillness is where, and the quiet stillness in body as well as stillness in mind. You know, I, I can barely sit still for three seconds. Nonetheless, like actually get my mind to be still. You know, and I'm not just talking about meditation, but my p- big part of my background is with nature connection. And I've run a wilderness school the last 18 years with my wife. And the stillness that we experience in nature is a direct pathway to soul, to vision, to purpose. This is all the old wisdom traditions, all the old spiritual traditions tell us this. You know, it was Jesus uh, spent his 40 days in the desert, basically a 40 day vision quest, fasting and praying. Buddha didn't get enlightened (laughs) on a mat in a a monastery. It was under the Bodhi tree. So many of the current popular dominant selves, the the doing energy, the achiever, the perfectionist, the inner critic, when they take over like that, they prevent us from having any access to that being quality or being carefree or the imaginal child, like what happened to that three-year-old that could lay down in the grass and stare at the clouds and see images and, and have a whole conversation with trees. That is a big part of what I 
connect people to. I, I do a lot of work these days helping people discover purpose. And that's a big part of it is going back to that. But we got to let go of all these other, you know, incredibly 10,000 pound gorilla, incredible dominant selves that are keeping us from that. So that's another one. And then the last layer I would say is, okay, and for the audience, just bear with me here. So if we have one, uh, one self, maybe it's the, the achiever and constantly pushing and it's got your to-do list and it's never done and there's always more. You've finished three items and 10 more pop up and then it's opposite is being energy. Okay, well, even that is limited because they're just selves. They're both actually colored sunglasses. Maybe the one is one color, one's the other. What happens when we realize that, okay, well, I'm not my achiever. I've got this other side of me. I, I can embrace being energy, but that doesn't define me either. Mm. So I'm not defined by achiever and I'm not defined by being energy in, in this example, or the same would go for something else. I'm not defined by being a pleaser of others, nor am I defined by self-care. Not saying there's anything wrong with either, but they're just energies. So what happens when I take them both off and I put them down? Mm. Who's the one that is aware of both of them? Who's the one that the sunglasses go on their face? What's left? If I'm not this and I'm not that, then who am I? That's the mystery. <laughs> and there's no easy answer to that question. But I will say my feeling on it is that is where soul resides. That's where our calling resides. That's where our purpose is. My work isn't so much to tell people, oh, you're too much identified with achiever. You need to do more being or, oh, you're too much of a pleaser. You need to self. That's not my job. My job is just to build awareness. Say, here you go. Here's these two sides. You tell me because people are wise. People are able to see where each energy is needed in their lives with some awareness. Mm -hmm. And that natural process, Helen Sidra, the originators of voice dialogue, called it the unique psychic fingerprint, that which is left when, when we're not identified with any parts, I would just call that soul. Yeah. And that's like this great intelligence, this guiding force that guides us. It is our calling. It's the source of intuition that is an incredible mystery. And in my experience, most easily connected with in the natural world as well as dreams we haven't spoken about dreams yeah. that's a whole other arena <laughs> but that ties right in here and yeah i mean in my experience of helping people discover vision and purpose uh, voice dialogue and ecology of self parts work this is i can't think of a better approach <laughs> to, to help people sure. That and like the vision quest, you know, it's quietly sitting outside in nature, which we've spoken about in, in another podcast. Okay, I wanted to make sure this one piece wasn't missed. When you judge another, you're most often identifying a part of you that you've hidden away or that you don't want to acknowledge. Mm. All right, first, let me just say, ouch. <laughs> uh, I've been there. I've experienced this. Uh, but let me also say, secondly, that this isn't necessarily easier, just cleanly straightforward. So let me explain a little bit. I was really, really good at judging people who seemed to be solely focused on their own needs and wants. They had no trouble turning other people down, saying no, or not being as flexible or as available as I liked to be. Well, I judged them as self-centered, as narrow-minded, 
themselves, only in it for themselves, especially if they were loud and emphatic in how they declared their needs first. I mean, come on, get over yourself. Well, what was I actually identifying though? I was identifying the fact that I wouldn't stand up for myself and put my needs first ever. I didn't speak up for myself that way. I didn't speak up for my needs and what I really did need at any given time. I didn't put that out there in the world. And I had resentment around it. I almost always said yes. Saying no even still pulls a little bit on my heart. I judged. They had something that I felt I was missing. It was causing me stress and pain without being able to acknowledge what was going on. You can turn judgment into a huge tool in practice for your own self-growth. In other instances, as just another simple example, I had judged people who littered. Like, they didn't care at all who had to go after and clean up after them. I mean, what the hell? Until I found myself leaving dishes in the sink for my wife for her to clean them up. Or I missed a garbage can in a park and I just kept walking. Ouch. Again, I'd identified that maybe I had more in common at that moment with those who have littered than I had cared to admit. Thank you, Integrity, for that one. So pay attention to what and who you judge. You can turn this into a tool and practice for your own self-growth. Try to get a little bit below the surface and consider what is really bothering me about this. Where might they be exhibiting something that I wish I had more of? Or where might I be judging that actually exists within me and that I don't want to look at? Seriously, write this down. Take these questions with you. Because if you walk with this for a couple of weeks, you will see how much your eyes open too. Now let's bring it home with Tim. It is an amazing way to discover that, as you said, the, the unique psychic fingerprint, as Helen Sitter Stone put it, the soul or the soul print, certainly as I've also called it. And it's amazing because, at least for me, there is something about that soul that knows the way in which our parts are going to show up at different times in our lives that, it, that, you know, at least for me, I believe there is a certain weaving that the, the soul certainly plays with us that, that has us encounter life in certain ways. And as we go through that, as you said, to be able to step back into the vulnerability, which usually means also to face the things that we have felt unsafe around or wounded by, I have seen that repeatedly be the spark of something as you described even in your own journey and, and now of having had so many years of youth mentoring and things like that where it's there are times that that wounding also produces a gift for us i'm not going to say that universally that's that's for everybody to sit with for themselves but certainly that's been my finding in my experience that being energy that stillness and how that clears way for all of it to be laid down for the soul to step through reminds me so much of the way that parker palmer right? Very famous teacher known for circles of trust and the Courage and Renewal Center. And he talks about this notion of how if we want to have these encounters with the soul, we can't go traipsing around nature, making all sorts of noise because we can't startle it. It is meant for us to move so slowly, to move with that stillness, that subtleness. And just like the little quiet animal in the woods, they'll all of a sudden just start to come out and allow themselves to be seen. 
And we don't create that space in modern society to have that level of stillness, let alone something like a vision quest that cultivates it at a whole other level. And so it is this really kind of beautiful way of creating this encounter with the deepest parts, uh, the deepest part actually of who you are, which is actually the truth, the soul, the whole of everything that you truly are. And I can t attest to the fact that this is a beautiful process to be able to actually go on that type of journey and open up into a whole other space, ask whole other questions and answer them from completely different realms that you have not accessed before because you've been coming at these questions from parts of who you are. And many parts of you have been left on the side and didn't have a voice in a lot of the questions that you've been answering. So this is one of those processes and, and a very unique one at that. It begins to bring all of those back to the fire, sitting around in circle, contemplating these questions until ultimately that stillness and that being drops in, fades away, and we can see what's there. Well said, Luke. And the only other piece I would add is the significance of the childlike parts, the child yes. parts, the imaginal child, mm. uh, the vulnerable child, the magical child. So much of what parts work can offer us is access to the, these parts of ourselves that typically are repressed way back there. Yeah. And not only is that the journey out of self-love, and that's a beautiful, beautiful part of it, but those childlike parts, you know, that three-year-old that has imaginary friends, what if those friends aren't actually imaginary? What if those are truly spiritual beings? I remember when my sons were little, they're now teenagers, but man, they had incredible spiritual connection at that age. Yes. And I did too when I was little. So these, these childlike parts are still in us. And we can gain access to them. And they have oftentimes the most direct connection to that soul in a way that our mature adult selves are, it's completely lost to our, uh, to our mature adult you know, selves. It's one, one of those things that stands out, uh, or rather, I, I remember so much from, from things that we shared during our time together working, was that as I began to gain access to that playful Part of myself, which is exactly, as you said, part of those childlike states, the childlike parts that get left behind through this, this process we call living life. And you had given a story at the time, feel free to share it if you choose, but I've gone since, and as you, you described this before, of looking at those parts of you that have atrophied and how do you begin to work them out again so you can build the strength. And so I have gone out, very similar to something you described, I have gone out in the woods with my five-year-old self and been led around with my five-year-old self. And just to see, and I mean, just to come back and re realize, you know, I was jumping from rock to rock to rock. I was climbing on things. I was way off the path, right? My kids going through, you know, their younger times with ADD, just running in every which oh, direction, yeah. oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> and allowing myself to play that way. And the more that we do that, the more that those parts come back online and they show up then in different ways. And it doesn't have to be all, you know, crazy and chaotic like a five-year-old, but that playfulness may show up in a meeting. It might show up in a relationship. It might show up with my wife. It might show up with my friends. And it can show up in all these different ways. And it, it does. It feels like more of you is back in the game. More of you is back in life again. Oh, yeah. 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 Do we have time? I can share that story. Sure. You're, let's, you're talking let's, about let's when I took with, my- Absolutely. My, yeah. Let's end with this because it was such a beautiful story. <laughs> this is a great one. I haven't shared it in a while. So this was, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And I was on a, a vision quest, a four-day solo 
fasting alone in, in the wilderness. I was down in Death Valley in this example. And a big part of my work at that time was reconnecting with my inner child, Timmy. You know, that's what everyone called me when I was young, Timmy. And I was a towhead. I had this blonde, white blonde hair. Now I've got white gray hair, but back then I had, I had white blonde hair and, you know, I don't know, three, four years old or something. And, you know, there were layers of trauma and, and some abuse in there and, and the big healing journey I had to get through. But underneath all of that, and, and for all those folks who do deal or who are out there dealing with trauma and abuse, that's the other thing is there is the traumatized child and there is also the pre-traumatized child within each of us folks. So please know that, you know, for as much and as hard as life can be sometimes dealing with trauma, and I've, I've, I've totally been there, know that there is also that pre-traumatized child that is pure and innocent and you have f- access to all of that. That's, that's available to you. So I was making my connection with that part of myself, kind of this innocent, magical, pre-traumatized little one, three or four years old. And as a dad, when my sons were young, what they would do, they would, you know, when we'd go on walks, they would grab my pinky. They would grab my, my pinky with their whole hand. And it was like the perfect little handle for their tiny three-year-old hand to hold on to. And it became like this incredible connection moment for me with my actual sons, you know, when they were little, like, oh, the feeling of those little hands on my pinky. I still remember it now. It's just like melts my heart, you know, and puts me in this incredibly vulnerable place and connects me to my own inner child. So here I was on my vision quest. I had this really strong feeling that, oh yeah, I I need to connect with my inner child. So well, I had taken a bandana with me and I just had this hit, oh, I'm going to wrap the bandana around my pinky Mm -hmm. to apply physical pressure as a way of getting my heart open. So I did. And sure enough, it worked. So I'm walking around with this bandana around my pinky, you know, like what the heck is this guy doing? Well, it's working though. So, and the, in my imagination, I'm taking little Timmy for a walk, but I tell him, I said, bud, this is your time. You get to be the leader. I'm just going to follow you. So we'll go wherever you want to go. Kind of like sometimes I did that with my boys when they were little. So, okay. So he wants to go over here. I'm in the desert and there's like cactus and hills and everything. And well, I want to go to this. Oh, I want to go to that one. And he leads me on this big kind of choose your own adventure from, he was really interested in, in the Joshua trees. And mm. there were big ones and small ones. And we was leading from one to the next to the next leads me to this, this dead Joshua tree that had fallen. It was a big one. You could see the skeleton and everything. And, and he wants to talk to the Joshua tree. So, okay. So I talked to this. So we talked to the Joshua tree and the dead one. It's like an old dead grandfather, Joshua tree and the grandfather, Joshua tree. This is all through the imagination. Right. And I couldn't access this otherwise, if it wasn't for my inner child, mm-hmm. but the grandfather, Joshua tree, the dead one says to little Timmy says, well, if you go up to that one way up there on that, on that mountain, there's a treasure for you. And <laughs> I mean, I'm looking and this is like miles away. I can barely make this thing out. And little Timmy is like stoked. And I'm just like, my God, I'm exhausted. I haven't eaten. I've got like no energy. I'm like, okay, am I really going to do like, what is going on? My skeptic kind of comes in for a moment. I'm like, this is crazy. Like, am I going to, okay, okay, okay. I'll do it. So it takes most of the day I get up there. Unbelievably. When I got up there, there was an old ancestral, flint napping site, a site where people had napped arrowheads, you know, chipped arrowheads and spearheads. And running a wilderness school, I I know this skill of flint napping. And I know the particular marks it makes on stones and what type of stones. And this was without question, an old one. In fact, it was so old that the old chips 
had lichen growing on them. So there was a part of me that wondered, well, was this current? Did somebody go up there and just do it recently? Because that could be possible. But lichen, I mean, this lichen, I looked yeah. it up, it was hundreds and hundreds of years for this stuff to grow. Well, that was an incredible experience, but more importantly, it led to this huge ancestral connection for myself that I'm is still playing out. I'm actually, I've got a trip with my dad next fall. We're going to Ireland, which is where our ancestral line comes from. And this was a huge, huge piece that allowed me to connect with my calling, with my, my own ancestral power, with my power and vulnerability, because those two are a pair that oftentimes go together and none of it could have happened without all the work with parts work and the work I had done to connect with my own inner child. And, you know, this is kind of a high spiritual adventure I'm describing here, but I'll tell you what, for folks that really, and and you've experienced this Luke, that that stick with this journey. I mean, incredible, incredible things happen like this. Yeah. I thank you for sharing that because I, I delighted in that story the first time you you shared it with me and and I thank you for sharing that with everybody. I would say for everybody, I encourage you to check out Tim, to check out his work. Tim, what's what's the best way for people to reach out to you or to connect with you, find you? Yeah, purposemountain.com. That's where you can find me, just purposemountain.com, just like it sounds, no spaces or dashes. I've got some free free offerings there and you can check out my other services as well. So we'd love to connect with folks. Tim, I want to thank you for coming on. Like I said, it, it, this gets us even deeper into a conversation that's been emergent on this show for a while now. And I hope this gives a lot of encouragement to everybody in whatever way you choose to pursue this, to check out Parts Work, to look up Voice Dialogue, obviously look up Tim at, at Purpose Mountain and continue to take a look into this work because it can lead you to extraordinary things. And personally, I would say self-love, thriving relationships, and being able to find and embody your purpose, those are pretty good ones. I mean, that's the pretty, <laughs> that's pretty good, good benefits there out of this. <laughs> type of work. So Tim, I want to thank you so much for going on this walk. Yeah. Well, you're welcome, Luke. Thank you. It's an honor. I hope you've enjoyed getting to know more about the parts of you that have remained hidden as well as those that have been in the driver's seat and how you can start to bring those back into balance. Before we sign off, just a reminder, as I said before, check out Tim Corcoran. You can find him at PurposeMountain.com. See all the programs and work and events that he's running. Lastly, If you want to bring more peace and freedom into your life, and don't forget to DM me through any social network so that I can send you my compassion meditation for building empathy. It'll help you de-stress and open up more space than ever before for connection, peace, and ease throughout your relationships. Again, just drop me a DM through any social network and it's yours. Finally, thanks to Billy, Sam, Damien, Feliz, and the rest of the team at Podify for their work and expert service in helping to produce on this walk.